1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Go Go for 2018. I'm Dr. Shane. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to have you listening to the show, especially uh, those in our live audience, but also those who are listening to this via the podcast, which I figure is delayed by a few days, but uh, welcome to you as well. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Welcome back. You're not on a plane for a change.
0: (laughs) Happy New Year, everybody.
1: Yeah, you folks, uh, we've got Dr. Ray in the studio as well. Welcome morning dr shane happy great, new to, year. great to talk to you happy new year uh we were just uh giving dr laura a bit of a scare because <laughs> of the sheer amount of radiation she's absorbing with all this travel how many flights have you been on so far 2018
0: um 28 well starting kind of next week then oh, okay is,
1: yeah <laughs> out of the gate slow. yeah
0: getting all the grants squared away so i really appreciate being able to come on the show to get that break grants yeah mm, those, same for dr ray yes
2: those are the way we, you know, we use ideas to come up with ideas as part of our job, and then we, like, write a grant to yeah. find that
1: said idea. I kind of, yeah, whenever I, whenever I see, hear grants now, I just think of that scene from the new Star Wars movie with Luke Skywalker and the milk from those creatures on the, anyway. Um, that's you guys, you addicted people. <laughs> In the studio though, we're going to. Some of us
2: work with industry as
1: well. Thank you. Uh, we're going to mix things up a bit for the first show though, folks, because we have some really great guests and we want to, um, dive right into them before we get to our normal news segment. So we're going to start off with our first guest for 2018. She's been in the studio before Dr. Kylie Stones. She's from the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Threatened Species Research Hub in the National Environment Science Program, School of Ecosystem and Foreign Science at the University of Melbourne. Kylie, did I miss anything?
3: No, no. Thank you for having me. And apologies, that my email signature is quite a nightmare to, awesome. to read out. Yes, it <laughs> captures great. everything I do in one or four neat little lines.
1: So. Yeah, <laughs> normally when our guests send information on what they do and so forth, they, they send us, you know, details of their research and it's, it's a little dry. But you basically sent me a message that said, Tough shit. I've got this job. You don't. My job's awesome. You know, you're not getting it. (laughs) So I've got to ask you I mean, what is your job now? What do you, because you were on about four years ago. We were talking about threatened species and space. But what's your job now? What are you doing at the university?
3: So my job now, um, As you mentioned, I think it's pretty awesome. It's basically what I've wanted to do since I was four years old, and I get to find ways to make sure that threatened species and other types of wildlife can survive in cities. So Mm -hmm. instead of trying to take care of them far away out in the bush or or somewhere out in the remote areas, I want to find ways that we can cram as much of them into cities and the places that we live and work uh,
1: as possible. Okay. One of the things I find interesting there is when, when we say cities, I, I suppose I live in the outer areas of the city, so I'm about 25 k's from the centre of town. Are you talking about sort of that area or are you talking about, you know, where we are right now, Nicholson Street, in the, in the middle of town? I mean, or is it both and how are they different?
3: I think it's both. I mean, urban's a really tricky word and we try and use it as a bit of a, a catch-all for basically anywhere there's a settlement of people. Mm-hmm. So some of our research trying to look at this idea that threatened species and conservation is more of a sort of out there thing. And we thought, well, let's test that. So we looked at the 1,600 or so threatened species that are on the federal threatened species list. And we overlaid their distribution. So sightings of where they've occurred, records of where we know they are with the outline of 99 cities and towns across Australia. And that was about anything from 10,000 people upwards. And we found that a third of those 1,600 species have actually been sighted or live in cities regularly. Uh, And we thought that was really fascinating and kind of just opened up this avenue of, well, if they're occurring in cities, what can we do to make sure that they stay there? And maybe Mm. we can even have more of them.
2: Mm. Can can you just qualify that to say what what types of species in urban areas? Because... In my mind, I've got this like, all right, well, there's probably like at least four snail species and some frogs. But
3: I'm thinking frogs. Yeah,
2: yeah. What what are the types of endangered species that are already in urban environments?
3: It it probably really surprised you. So Melbourne has 46, and I'm talking sort of about the the greater Melbourne outline, not just the the inner city parts of Melbourne. So we've got 46 threatened species that we've identified uh, that are listed at the federal level, and that's everything from southern brown bandicoots, so these little ground-dwelling critters, um, all the way up. To things like the orange bellied parrot, which comes here mm. in, in winter and hangs out in the sewage treatment plant of all places. So nice. these threatened species <laughs> aren't just hanging out in these, you know, amazing large big reserves or parks that we have in the cities, but they're slumming it in the sewage treatment plants and the quarries and, and things like that.
1: It's interesting to me. You know, you have some of these species that you don't find elsewhere. So, you know, we have literally created our environment, you know, and we've displaced theirs in some cases, but our environment has now become their, their final refuge. How do we, how do we sort of monitor how good our environment is for them? Because we, I mean, we don't make changes for. The those these species in this case we make them for ourselves. You know we talk a lot about environmental conditions on the fringes and so forth, but in some of these cases, you know, it might be you know the local buildings and, and and so forth and ledges and you know where where we can contain them.
3: Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and that's kind of the work that our research group is doing. So one of the ways that you can try and figure out how you can make space for these species in cities is look at where they're already making space for themselves. Right. So when they yep. are trying to, you know, in your ledges or nesting in your chimney, I mean, there's a threatened species of black cockatoo in Perth and people have found them trying to build nests in people's chimneys on the roof because there aren't enough hollow bearing trees where they can have their nests. Yeah. And so taking from that, some of the locals have started taking big uh, big chunks of wood and sticking them on their roof so that the cockatoos can actually come and you know, not nest in the chimney, but nest in the roof. And they've actually been really successful. So, so this
1: is one of the things that I find interesting. I mean, we have some of these, um, sort of wider coloured cockatoos at the moment that are coming and ravaging a tree out the front of our house. And if you unfortunately happen to leave your car underneath, it's like a $50 cleaning job. It's really hard to get these little nuts off it. And I know a lot of people are sort of like, you've got to get rid of these cockatoos and so I think, yeah, but why don't we just park our car somewhere else? Like, you know, there's the, how is the response you're finding to some of these requirements? Because it's easy to say, well, hang on, let's just get these species out of the way. But in reality, actually, we need to coexist. And that might be a little bit more challenging on our part to do that.
3: Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's about, you know, we don't want to tell everyone that you have to have possums in your roof and you have to let snakes mm. be in your garden yeah. and all this. You know, that's that's not the way to go yeah. about this. These are places where people live, so they have to be safe for both. But the way I see it is, if you know, we can put rockets and little robots running around on mars taking photos we can figure out a way to deal with cockatoos or possums in our backyard it can't be that complicated Do yeah, you think so and Kylie, so does is part of the strategies
0: you're developing is part of that getting the community on board and sort of releasing you know what people can do to help
3: absolutely and it's it's not just about showing ways that people can help but also finding ways that people want to help and, and tapping into things that people already want to do rather than forcing different ideas down their throats. Um, but a big part of it as well is we can have lots of crazy ideas for things that we can do for species in cities, but we also need to figure out how well they work. And that's where a lot of the science comes in is testing and evaluating and, and trying these things in sort of controlled experiments. Mm.
1: Which species do you pick? Do you, do you pick, you know, you have to choose a few. You've got so many to deal with. You have to choose a few. And I'm wondering whether you pick them based on the severity of their, the, the potential threats to them, or this is my favourite little cute and cuddly thing. I mean, you know, we, we often see a lot on the cute and cuddlies, but how do you go about choosing the ones you monitor, the ones you put the effort into?
3: So some of the work that my colleagues are doing is trying to make a decision process for figuring right. just that thing out so not just all right what species are already here and how can we deal with them but if we wanted to bring certain species back how would we go about that mm-hmm. um, so it's some amazing work that that Lewis Martha at RMIT one of my colleagues is doing trying to figure out uh which species we could bring back to the city based on where they are, how much it would cost, what their ecological requirements are, whether or not people want them, what their cultural and Indigenous significance might be, taking all of those things together and helping councils and and land managers decide which species we could have and which ones we want to have and Mm. bring back.
2: Mm. So first, I think Dr Shane's underrating the cuteness of snails. (laughs)
1: Um, (laughs)
2: Second, uh, when you change an ecosystem, there's always things you have to think a follow-on changes you have to uh, think about, but in engaging the community, aren't there also instances where beyond the conservation argument, the biodiversity argument can have very positive follow-on effects. And the example I'm going to mess up is the peregrine falcon in New York city, where they even increased an amount of nesting places for them to, on ledges and it helped reduce pigeon populations. So bringing in, In that case, it was a predator, an apex predator, but bringing in things that eat nuisance bugs that, you know, might do good things for your garden also has a, has a, has a follow on in, in enhancing the biodiversity and the ecosystem that people are living in. Is that something that's comes to the community much?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what I love so much about this space is there are so many different motivations for wanting to do this. Some of it if you're like me, it's just because I love these animals. And I don't think that they should be displaced just because we live there. I think we can share and all get along. But then there are also so many benefits that come from that. So you might want to make sure that there are more of the tiny insectivorous bats in urban areas so that they can control mosquito populations and keep the insects down. Or you might want to make sure there are powerful owls to uh, control pesky possum problems. So there are so many benefits to people from having biodiversity in mm. cities. So it's just a matter of understanding that very complex web and working with people to make sure that we're doing it the right way.
1: Now I understand there's a there's a website that you can use to determine what's in your area, which is kind of cool because uh, I mean these depending on what part of the city or what side of the city or um, so forth you're on, you you may be near the shoreline, you may be you know near the dandelongs, whatever. Yeah. Um, you'll get different species coming in. So Absolutely. Tell us about that.
3: That's my favourite uh, thing that we've made last year, it's uh, a map, an interactive map that you can go onto on our website and I'll give you guys the link for that. Uh, And what it is is... You can click on any one of the 99 species that we included in our study and it will give you up a list of all of the threatened species that either live in the city, uh, live around the city, or really interestingly, the ones that used to live in the city but are no longer there. Uh, And for each of those species, you can click on a little link and it will take you to what's called the Atlas of Living Australia where you can learn a whole lot more about where those species records come from, what that species needs, and if you're lucky, see some very cute and cuddly pictures.
1: Yeah, and I suppose there's an opportunity there for certain people to – to help create the sort of environment locally that might, might encourage those, those species in. I mean, I know in our case, you know, whenever we pack our veggie garden with stuff we always plant some very bright, bright colorful flowers as well to help bring the bees and the dragonflies and you know the sort of the things that i've managed to give my kids an excitement about when they see them not the fear about that yep. you often get they're like these things yet yeah, we need these guys these guys are awesome they're going to kill all the shits that really wreck our plants <laughs> yeah so you know that's sort of bringing bringing them back in based on knowing what their environments I think is, is, a, is a great thing that people will
3: do. Absolutely, and I think the awareness is, is such a big thing. I mean, I've worked with uh, threatened species and wildlife for 10 years or so and I had no idea how many threatened species I could actually find in my local area. And mm. I think once we start to realise that, it can kind of change the mindset of how we look at cities. It's not just places where you see pigeons and possums and, you know, a few cockatoos, but there are a whole amazing variety of native species that we could be interacting with and taking care of.
1: Yeah. Before we let you go, Kylie, have you got a favourite?
3: I can't go past uh, the yellowtail black cockatoos and they're not on the threatened species list, but they're just the bird that every time I see them, I just, I can't help but stop. I mean, they sound like a pterodactyl of all right. things, which I think is just amazing and they look like this flying brick bobbing along the skyline, so <laughs> they're my pretty much my all-time favourite species to yeah. see in an urban area.
1: Fantastic lookout from folks. Dr Kylie Soans from the University of Melbourne doing some great work there in um, keeping uh, keeping our threatened species and us engaged in the appropriate way. Kylie, thanks so much and we will chat to you again at some stage. I think we'll try not to do it every four years. We'll maybe get you in before that, but um, this is great work so we'll get you in again thanks Sounds for
3: fantastic thank you great. you're
0: listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple in melbourne australia
1: in the studio we have our next two guests we have professor peter chung he's the sir hugh devine chair of surgery and head of the university of melbourne's department of surgery and he has a lot of other accolades which i'm going to get away with not reading out for him also we have professor jane gunn who's the deputy dean of the faculty of medicine dentistry and health sciences at the university of melbourne peter jane welcome to triple r Hi,
4: Shane.
1: Now, it's, it's great to have you you on because we're, we're talking today about an area that I think either affects people or affects people they know. It affects, you know, pretty much the entire community. And you're both part of this new Centre of Excellence, Centre of Research Excellence in Total Joint Replacement. Now, Peter, you're the surgeon. I want to sort of start with you. Um, how many joints do you replace in a given year? So from a personal perspective, mm. uh, close to
4: about 200 joints a wow. year. Uh, but Australia wide, a hundred thousand joints are done a year, possibly divided equally between hips and knees.
1: And how does that sort of stratify up into sort of people who have, um, issues because of age versus, you know, Dr. Ray here who does a lot of, you know, spelunking and stuff, you know, that, you know, how does that divide up? Right.
4: So the majority of, um, joint replacements are done for degenerative arthritis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what that is is the wear and tear of joints. And as we all get older, and because of our healthy aging population in Australia, we have a lot more of them. Uh, injuries probably account for about five percent or so, and and then you get into the rarefied
1: um, causes and conditions. Mm. Now, Jane, you're you know general practice, so you see people in the community uh, primarily. At what point do you, well, how do you go about making the assessment to take one of your patients who's been walking in with a sore hip for a while and send them off? You know, these guys, they just love to cut people open. I mean, how do you... Is that right, Pete? You just... you love have to cut. Um, how, do you, how do you know... Like, at what point do you say, well, okay, that pain threshold has is, is been reached for this patient? How do you know? I mean, it's so subjective, patient-specific. How do yeah, you sure. go about that?
5: So, I think, you know, where it uh, starts in the community, Shane, is when the person will come in, usually complaining of pain or complaining of difficulty um, getting out of bed. Uh, sometimes they'll even complain of pain at night, you know, waking them up. So, it's usually... Usually, pain, that's what they, they come in with. Um, sometimes, you know, down the track, they get loss of function as well. Mm-hmm. But to begin with, it, it's just finding it difficult to get around, um, often getting in and out of cars, getting up and down steps, that sort of thing will be the, the thing that the patient will notice. Um, and usually they want, mostly they want the pain to go away and they want to be able to just get about and do the things that they used to do. Um, and they. Probably, you know, think a lot of people put up with a lot at home by themselves mm. Um and they often start to do less, particularly with exercise. So they start to move less Um and that exacerbates the problem and they have a, an ideal um that surgery will fix them. So they kind of come and they think that, you know, I could just get a new hip like I could, you know, get a new car. Yeah, and it'll right. just work and then not everything will be fine. And my um, discussion with them is it's not quite as simple as that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've often encountered people, you know, who've had their knees done and it's really a positive conversation. You know, it's, it's often, there's often a restriction or there's something and they think, oh, yeah, I'm kind of happy I had it Oh, not really. You know, you, you never get that oh, yeah, you know, this was the best operation I've ever had. You know, you talk to someone about who's, who's had their appendix out and they don't say, mm, I'm not so sure I should have done that. But you talk about knee operations and some of these sorts of things and it's always a bit more you know, mm-hmm. flexible in the sort of responses you get.
5: Yeah, so it's a. I think it's a, a really complex issue and each patient is different. Um, and having that conversation with them around, firstly, around uh, losing weight and keeping more active, way ahead, very early on, you know, at the first sort of signs when they're starting to get arthritis um, mm. early, you know, usually in middle age, and it's starting to, you know, keep them active and keep them um, away from... Professor Chung,
1: as long as possible. And Jane, while I've I've got you in here, because I've never actually been able to ask someone this on air, but... What exactly is arthritis? What's happening in the body when someone gets arthritis?
5: So arthritis is really an interesting condition because there's different sorts of arthritis mm. and we use that term really generally. And the arthritis that we're talking about with mostly with the CRE is around osteoarthritis. So it's the wear and tear arthritis. Um, but we think it's probably more than just wear and tear. There probably is a physiological thing going on as well. It's not just wearing down the, the joint. There might also be some systemic pain part of osteoarthritis. It runs in families and people are more some people are more prone to it than others. So there is a a genetic component going on as well. It's not just the fact that you use that joint Mm. really um, you know too much much, if you like.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now Peter, you're one of the only surgeons I've ever come across who actually wants to do less of these surgeries. Like it's part of the research at this this center is to to try and work out you know which patients you shouldn't be seeing. In a sense, I mean, talk us through that yeah. process because you said that number of a hundred thousand. I mean, that's a lot. That's yeah, it's, a very it's big number. A hundred thousand years a lot of joints, and yeah. when you think about the cost of it.
4: It's it's approaching anywhere between two and five billion dollars when you when you assess the direct con- costs as mm-hmm. well as the indirect costs. But if we can just go back. To the process, patient gets seen, has pain and stiffness, and x rays taken that show some arthritis, and traditionally an onward referral to uh, a joint replacing orthopedic surgeon results in the outcome of a joint replacement. Mm -hmm. What we're finding out now is how important it is, firstly, to know have you got the right diagnosis? Because people with hip pain can also have pain from another area like their backs being referred. Secondly, have they actually responded to other non-surgical methods of treatment? And, you know, mm-hmm. up until recently, the movement down that pathway from x-ray to specialist has been quite smooth. It right. hasn't really been interrupted by the injection of other non-surgical techniques, To the hmm. perhaps to the, to the degree it can. Yep. And thirdly, for those who actually do qualify, do they have a severity of the arthritis sufficient that when we do our surgery, we know they're going to have a good outcome? Right. Finally, there are those who meet all the criteria for joint replacement, but they're just simply not fit, and we need to give them an alternative too. Mm -hmm. So those scenarios are what actually occupies us and has become much more clear to researchers in the field, myself included, and that raises the question, who do we find to give the most appropriate care to? And what we're finding is that uh, with all the research that's being done, we can actually bring them together in a very multidisciplinary way. It's not just about surgical research. It's about physiotherapy research, general Mm. practice research, pain control research. And in fact, mindfulness training and the psychological aspect is also very, very important. I think bringing those things together gives us the best chance of optimizing modern care for this chronic disease that is now second only to mental health
1: yeah. in terms of disability in, in in Australia yeah something a lot of people wouldn't be aware of that that particular stat um, when you look at the, the you know the patient that comes in that you do have to do um, the replacement on, how much has modern technology changed the success there because I, I, so I have this and peter please correct me if I'm wrong yeah. but I have this image of, you know, someone comes in, you have a vague look at them, yeah, you look like a number four, you know, in terms of size. But, you know, we have 3D printers. We have all this stuff these days. You can do an MRI and and literally mimic the precise size, shape, and density of of the... I mean, has that changed the outcomes and the way you do surgery?
4: Yes. Well, joint replacement is very, very safe. Mm. It's extremely cost-effective for treating end-stage arthritis. What we know, though, is that if we can improve the prostheses that we use the way we actually fix them to the bone and the articulation, meaning where the ball rubs with uh, Mm -hmm. the socket, whether it's the hip or the knee, if we can improve those elements of joint replacement, we potentially can give patients a longer survival of the joint replacement they have. And what we've shown is that all those increments in innovation have resulted perhaps over the last 20 years of a survival of a prosthesis from 10 to 12 years Uh, per prosthesis to now 15 to 20. So -hmm. we really have improved the survival and and lots of people are going the distance, as it were. Uh, We use computers to guide us in surgery. We use infrared cameras, line of sight, as it were. We're now bringing robots into the field and all of that, is to improve the accuracy of implantation. The scientists look at the polymers, the plastics that I mm. use on the socket side to make them really durable. And the metal researchers are looking at the surfaces of the metals to see how can I really excite the bone to grow in and hang on to the prosthesis mm. if you were using what's called a non-cemented version. In, in any case, the importance is really to balance the wow factor of innovation with actually things that work. Hmm. And sometimes you don't want to be too far on the leading curve because it ends up being the bleeding curve if things go go wrong. So it's important that we look at the data, uh, we look at experience, and uh, at least in Australia, Australia has um, uh, uh, the title of being one of the first to have a a national registry of joint replacement so we can really interrogate that information to find out what works what doesn't or at least where the red flags are that makes us aware of any trends that may not suit the patient mm.
1: you mentioned there you know the, the longevity of some of these replacements is is that because the replacement itself is breaking down i mean i know that the body's a it's a nasty environment yeah. you know generally for anything you put in the body is is that the the object itself breaking down or the way it interacts with our body what's the time limiting factor it, there it is a it is a um, combination of the two and it's, Jane says,
4: we often have an idea that we will go to a specialist, they'll put the implant in and that's it. Mm. Well, that's only part of the story. Because you're putting a medical device in that moves, it has a bearing surface that means one side rubs against another. And like everything, whether it's the wheel housing of our cars and suspension, brake linings, it will eventually wear. So how we treat the prosthesis, whether we run jump, thump, or whether we bike and swim, Mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Also, as we all get a little older, if we're relying on the bone to grow into the prosthesis and hang on to it, the data would suggest that that's not working as effectively as just cementing it in position. Right. And the way cement works is you create a cavity within the bone, you pour cement into it and you place the prosthesis like Excalibur.
1: Yeah. In it, and it stays firmly I, mean, fixed. I mean, you describe, I love it. When you describe this stuff, it literally, I, I feel like I've just been to the hardware store and, and I know, I know in your surgery, there is, there's bound to be, you know, power tools that most of us would think, are you seriously using those on the body? I mean, th- this is, we, we this use, is the it works, right? We
4: use drills
1: and hammers <laughs> and boring and burrs. We,
4: we, it's a, it's a, it's a fun area to be in. We get, to For people who like that
1: type of I was going to say, for the surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of noise.
0: Thank God the patient's asleep. But can, can I uh, ask, what's, what's the average lifespan after you've had a total um, joint replacement of the prosthesis?
4: Okay, so off the hip, it sits around about 15 years. There's about a 90% survival rate at 15 years and perhaps for the knee a little longer. And that is uh, due to the fact that we're far more concerned as to how we put it in uh, as precisely as we can using uh, really good devices that have been tested in a way that the design works. The materials work and the principles behind that design work,
0: and the sort of follow-up for the patient. Do you just you keep? Does that patient get a long follow-up sort of across? You know, after you've had that replacement.
4: Well, some of the research that Jane and I have been involved with looks at how do patients go after surgery, and what we find is where they are at about a year or eighteen months after surgery is how they'll be for the next five years at least. So, our Our early follow-up, let's say at six weeks and six months at a year, is to really whip them along. Come on, you can do better. Let's do more exercise because we want to get you to the area where you'll be optimized, as we say, because if you're not there, what can we do to help you? We bring in our colleagues from physiotherapy, Uh, the specialist will interact with the general practitioner who has to oversee a lot of this. How can we get you there? But once you're there, the follow-up then goes on maybe in five years' time. 10 years time once we get to 10 years we might start seeing the patient a little bit more frequently because that's when the concept of wearing of the parts come in and that's where we have to pay a little bit of attention because what we'd like to do is time it just right so that if we do have to change a part it's not going to increase the risk to the patient any more than if they just came in and said, I have an issue. So it's, it's about timing at mm. that time.
5: Peter, Peter um, do you think that patients are aware of the um, that history of what lies ahead for them when they make the decision to have a joint replacement?
4: The, the, the honest answer is I don't believe all of them would. I do believe, though, as surgeons, when we discuss this with patients, it's it's really our responsibility to make them uh, understand the, the natural history. And by doing that, it makes them part of the surveillance team. Mm-hmm. So they understand mm-hmm. when things are going wrong or whether little, you know, we don't want them to worry about every little creak that happens or every little nip here and there because there are many reasons why you can get that. But when there's consistently something that's troubling them, we want them to appreciate that, well, you know, maybe we should go back and see the surgeon uh, just for a check-up. And at that time, usually x-rays are taken to confirm so-called the position as well as the performance
1: of the prosthesis. Mm-hmm. Jane, on this sort of swing back to you for a moment with regards to we've talked we've talked a lot about the patients, but there is a massive task here in terms of the the not so much retraining, but certainly educating the clinical staff, you know, whether it be the GPs or whoever at every level in this process, because what you're talking about is a, a very different approach to the sort of stock standard repair care model of medicine that we have where, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you got a so hip. We'll just take that and replace it. I mean, this is, this is a more integrated complex environment. I mean, how are you going to go about? You know, essentially refreshing the approach that many clinicians take to their patients.
5: Mm. Yeah, I think Shane, that the um, osteoarthritis is a really good example of of you know the change in approach to chronic disease management across the board. Mm. And it is that change from thinking of a condition as one particular thing and it's the same for everyone, and then realising that that everybody's um, osteoarthritis is different. So therefore, the treatment responses are going to be different. The interventions that you can offer them are going to be um, a different mix for each person. And this really brings us to the, the thing that, you know, lies ahead in, in medicine, which is for stratified care, for personalised medicine, mm. um, where we're thinking about uh, your particular knee or hip, and the problem that is with it. How do we assess you as an individual and give you a good idea of the range of treatments that are on offer for you and the likelihood that you'll respond to them? Um, and I think one of the biggest changes that this brings into the way that we train medical students um, and way that we train um, GPs and specialists is that it means that we're talking about probabilities mm-hmm. rather than certainties. Yep. And this is where things are different. You know, from saying when the patient will say, Well, do you think I should have a hip replacement? You know, should I get my joint replaced? And that question, how you answer that question is going to change and involve all sorts of things from assessments, um, surveys of the patient, um, looking at things over time rather than making that decision on one consultation. That's going to be mm. a quite a difference, I think. And then what we're interested in developing are things called these risk stratification tools, mm. which I- helps put you into different categories of how you're likely to respond to surgery or physiotherapy or pain relief.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the whole, the whole phenotype, I guess you call it, of the patient. So not just, you know, what I look like and my genetics, but the fact that I do these activities in my life. Yeah. I have this support structure in my life. I have, you know, these disadvantages in my life because of what that family history or whatever. All of that presumably should come into these decision-making processes. And at the moment, it doesn't seem as though, that's the case. I mean, it's, you, you rarely have that, um, except for, I guess, in mental health where there is a very strong emphasis on all the pieces of the. The are interacting with you from from the clinicians, you don't get that as much from other parts of the, the medical profession in the way that you know, we're talking about here. It's, mm. uh, it seems as though it's, it's, it's lacking still.
5: That's right, and that's what I think um, makes the, the work of the CRE that, the, uh, that Peter's set up and brought together a whole group of cl- researchers and clinician researchers mm. to really look at these things differently and bring those things right into the spotlight early on in the person's interaction with the healthcare system and even before that you know people being aware of the importance of the way that they look after their their joints um mm. it's it's it goes all the way from prevention right through to the very difficult um joint replacement where you can actually Uh, revolutionise someone's life because, you know, I've seen people um, that come out of their joint replacement surgery and with a fabulous new lease of life and they're so, you know, happy that they've had it um, and how do we make that more the norm than the person that comes out and says, oh gee, that wasn't what I expected. So
1: so just coming back to your 100,000 figure and what, you know, Jane just mentioned what portion of the 100,000 are the I've got a new lease on life and do we know? Well, um Let's look
4: at it the other way. What proportion of people are not happy Mm. despite what looks like a great joint replacement and performs really well, and if I measure the movement, it just ticks all the boxes? And what we're finding out is between about 15 and 25% of patients. That's a lot. It is. It's between one-sixth and one-quarter who perhaps are not as happy. And what it means is that these people who are not happy, are still accessing the medical system. They're still Mm. going to outpatients. Resources are still being deployed to manage a problem that is not giving them relief. And that goes back to the question of, was the diagnosis right?
0: And when we say not happy, like um, because if everything kind of looks fine surgically, Mm. does that mean sort of, you know, they're they're still in pain or?
4: Yeah, so I think there there are two elements of happiness. Whenever you do a a piece of surgery is the surgeon happy that the job was done? Then the most important element after that is is the patient happy that surgery been done? And what we're finding out more and more is despite what the surgeon might feel about their incandescent work, it's really the patient who's the most important person in the equation. And what we're trying to do is match just the right surgery for the right patient at the right time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get that right, And and it it sort of goes to what Jane was saying earlier that it is multifaceted, it's multidisciplinary and it needs to be underpinned by the sort of research that uncovers in each of those disciplines what are the telltale signs that tell us a patient's not Mm. quite right. So we've worked out something called a nomogram which is a tool that helps pick of a group of patients who's most likely to not respond. Is that right? And we have, for example, their mental health status their body weight index, the so-called their weight, et cetera, the degree of change in the x-ray, as well as the degree of pain, et cetera. And when you put it together, you can actually graph the response of that. And it predicts, do you have a 60% chance of non-response versus a 15% chance of non-response? And I think using all those bits of information, surgeons and clinicians can come closer to picking the right patient. And, and when you pick the right patient, you are more likely to have a satisfied customer. And we measure that afterwards mm. through patient satisfaction.
1: So, so Peter, I mean, or Jane, probably best coming to you for this, mm. but when when you have that information, this is where the transformational path has to occur. And you go back to a patient and you say, I'm sorry, but you're in the group that we don't think that, you know, you've heard all your friends have had these hip replacements and they're, you know, they're playing basketball again, but but you're not in that group. I mean that is a very different conversation to what's happened traditionally and a very difficult one presumably.
5: Well yes, but I think it's something more and more that we're using in general practice and and the approach in general practice is that we would work through um, a tool or you know set of questions like that with the patient mm-hmm. um, and sort of build up that risk profile if you like. it's it's a two-way conversation. We do it in um, cancer sort of you know whether people should have colonoscopies and things like that already. We do it in heart disease. Um, do we do it well? That's another question. But it's certainly something that we're starting to teach um, students about and general practice registrars. Mm. And I think it's going to be one of the most important things that the primary care um, doctor and GP of the next 20 years spends their day doing much, much more of this, mm. helping people to interpret um, their risk profile. Because at the end of the day, it's a risk it's a probability that you're going to have a poor outcome, and whether you're happy with a fifteen percent chance of a poor outcome, or whether you'll tolerate a fifty percent chance of a poor outcome, is going to come down to the level of disability and, mm. that and the you're currently risk in. takers versus not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a really interesting area, the one of um, decision science, clinical decision making. Yeah.
1: yeah. It, it, just before I let you guys go, I just wanted to touch on the the other issue. At the moment, we hear a lot about which is data. In informatics and the use and transformation of the medical um, system with with all this new data you know the amount of data is just mind blowing that we have but it seems relatively unutilized at the moment in fact it 's probably more used by by patients themselves, than by the system you know, of healthcare. How do you see that playing a role, or not, in in this work that you're doing with the centre?
5: I think that there's a. You're right. There's a great opportunity if we can harness the information that's in the clinical record, in patient records already. Um, and you're also right that. We aren't well organised in that way here currently um, in Victoria or really anywhere much in Australia. And having, I think, doing that in a way that the public trusts so that information in in clinical records can be brought together um, across their different, um, where they go for medical care and and joined up to answer these questions Mm. that are going to help them is one of the the biggest advances we'll make. um, And it's a big topic
1: yeah, big topic. Peter, just before we go, the, the centre, tell us how big, how it's funded, um, what it's there to do. Yep. So the centre for research excellence was awarded
4: through the NHMRC and it's worth 2.5 million over a period of five years. What it does is it acts as a leverage point. To get other grants, which we've been successful at doing since getting this, what it does is it create it builds capacity, bringing researchers together from disparate fields, and hopefully by having a, a hub, a critical mass of them, it can generate the sort of research we need to do to produce these very, uh, the very tools that Jane's been talking about. Mm.
1: Fabulous, uh, Professor Peter Chung, Professor Jane Gunn. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's an exciting area, and you need to get this all sorted. The other figure I've got about. 15 years, 20, maybe less, ish. But, ish. <laughs> <laughs> before I need the, these, uh, I just stay away from x-rays because they always show you something and someone says, that's a little bit of arthritis in there <laughs> uh, after the age of about 35. So I think just keep away from x-rays. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, Shane. Professor Peter Chung is the uh, head of surgery at um, the University of Melbourne Department of Surgery and a professor at the University of Melbourne. In St. Vincent's Hospital, and Professor Jane Gunn is the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Now, we uh, have some, well, I guess we've got about eight weeks' worth of news, but we'll, you know, just give you a small piece. Dr. Laura, we're going to start with you. What have you got for us?
0: My favourite story for the week, which was published a few days ago from WashU in Psy Tra- Translational Medicine. The title of the journal, I'm going to read it out for you because it's just a really great example of how a story can be really exciting. And, you know, I, I think everybody will be excited, but the title's so dry you wouldn't come a-running. Talk about. Wait up. for it. Sensory deprivation after focal ischemia in mice accelerates brain remapping and improves functional recovery through ARC-dependent synaptic plasticity. The word
2: no, mice got me excited.
0: Nobody would be running to read that journal, which it's really <laughs> oh, interesting.
2: Oh, no, synaptic plasticity, mate. That's exciting. That's, that's exactly. stuff. That's brain. I can let, learn new let, stuff.
0: Let, yeah. let, let me break this down in one word. Well, not one word, just a few words. Trimming mice's whiskers, it gets them to recover better from stroke. That's so exciting, trimming their whiskers. Also, this makes me feel a little bit better about my life because I've been traumatized for many years about how I ca- cut my cat's whiskers when I was young. Let's let's not go there.
2: <laughs> <Wait>, um, <laughs> trimming whiskers.
0: Trimming whiskers. There is a rationale behind this okay, I'm, study. I'm thinking
2: some implications for hipster beards here. but um, yeah, Just walking down the street and helping people. Yeah. No, no, no. Anyway, sorry. No, is good. No whiskers Uh, is good. Okay.
0: So there was a rationale for trimming the mice's whiskers. Mm -hmm. The rationale is that, of course, rodents' whiskers are their kind of one of their primary sensory organs. They use their whiskers to sense their environment. And there's a kind of school of thought where if you stop brain um, activity in one area... When you have damage to the brain you 'll get enhanced remapping and recovered recovery in another area. so the study's really cool. They induced stroke with a laser in scientific studies these days there 's always a laser involved, and they induced a stroke into a gr- into two groups of mice um, in an area of the brain that controlled the activity of the right forepaw. Then they split the mice into two groups they cut whiskers of one mice and the other mice no trimmed whiskers and then they watched the recovery from stroke and what
1: can I, can I ask her, yes. you? Yes. Know, I mean, is this a... You're not buying it. <laughs> well, No, my question is, why would you do that? Like, what was... Well, you I, use I was, a laser
2: because a lightsaber is too big for a Oh, mouse. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> that, that, that part. That, that, okay. Why would you, yeah. you lose
1: but the... Why, but why would you say, hey, let's try cutting these whiskers and see... You know, I mean, what's the... Where's the hypothesis in that? Well, like,
0: many years ago, they showed that if you tickle rats' whiskers, yeah. you actually get a lot of kind of activity in the brain. Oh, okay. Right? And so... The brain imaging they showed after cutting the whiskers is really cool. So they've damaged the brain in one area, the forepaw area. In the mice where you've trimmed the whiskers, they actually find um, that you get a much better recovery... And reuse of the forepaw in the whisker trim group, because by studying their brain activity through, you know, cool, you know, diagrams that are in the, in the journal, um, you can see that the activity associated with moving your forepaw moved to the area where you have whisker activity. Mm, So it's about having this damage and it moving to an undamaged area of the brain. And you actually see this in patients. So say people who, when they recover from the stroke, one of the first things that's happened is you might start to wiggle your fingers. And if you look at the brain activity of these patients, there is a normal known, the scientists know the finger wiggling activity area, it mm. moves to a different area of the brain. And so this has major implications for stroke rehab
1: because so I, I guess, uh, I suppose what I'm, I'm not appreciating there is the. Just the intensity of the value of sensory input from whiskers for a mouse, yes. And just, and it's just very, very important you know, for like, a mouse. So, it's not so big yeah, so it's is, a big deal. So it's a big deal. So is the subsequent study? You're going to put
2: blindfolds on the mice or earmuffs on the mice and yeah, see yeah. like similar sort sensory, sort of sensory input, input. input. I suppose whiskers is the easiest one in mice, but
0: yeah, it's just so easy. I mean, mm. there's, there are so many nerve endings in whiskers, and they kind of you know power. You know, when you tickle whiskers, it really powers off in the brain. Mm. So it's really shutting down that air of a brain, so you can get enhanced recovery and relocalization and remapping is kind of the fancy term of activity from mm. one area of the brain to the other so, so bottom yeah. line don't move when you get a stroke or
2: um. well, so does this go to that myth where people say if they lose their eyesight their hearing becomes better
1: well, the, I'm, you, not you sure. know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I, I've heard yeah. that that many times, but I think uh, you, know, you, you. I mean, you can do this through meditation, where if you mm. if you don't pay attention to one of your senses, your level of attention for your other senses is obviously we're, distributed. We're, we're still
2: way far from anything in people. Yeah. But what yeah. you were saying but, does this have an implication for?
0: Yeah, it does. How mean.
2: how we drive. Well, neuroplasticity,
0: what it shows is that you can move um, a function that's associated in one area of the brain to another mm-hmm. area of the brain. If you can create sort of a vacant real estate in the brain, you can get enhanced recovery faster.
1: So I was just saying I've got plenty of vacant real estate. <laughs> <Did> I, <laughs> I yeah. don't kind of,
2: I don't disagree with that comment. <laughs> I, just just did the did they let the whiskers grow back and did the whiskers still work the way they were supposed to? This
0: is where I became really relieved as a former cat whisker cutter. Okay. Um, it was all fine. Okay. It's all good. Don't cut your cat's whiskers, people. No. But um, no, it was um, the whiskers grew back and, you know, then.
1: As, a, as yeah. a child, you did that to your cats?
0: Just a couple of whiskers. Well, like, my, I, feel of I feel terrible about it. My understanding
1: with cats is that, that their whiskers is how, how they determine what size hole they can fit through. Well,
0: yeah, they use yeah. their whiskers to so sense their environment. It's like, like radar, like you mouse. know, so, like, yeah, it's yeah. Like, um, incredible
1: They're stuff. They're highly so.
0: sensitive organs for, yeah. for animals.
1: Or sensors. Organs?
0: Sensors. They are sensors.
1: Yeah, sensors, yeah. Cool stuff. Very cool. It's cool
0: stuff.
2: Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, um, I, 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 I didn't go with whiskers. I went for something a little bit more ecology based, but it was about plastic in the oceans, but an aspect of it that I hadn't really considered before. Now, many of you have heard of, have heard of the Pacific Ocean Great Garbage Patch, mm. which is in mm-hmm. one of the gears where it's accumulated so much plastic floating on the ocean as waste that I think the area is equivalent to the size of Texas and the U.S. So it's not small. Um, Anyway, we've heard of plastics and we see pictures of mammals and fish interacting with plastics. Uh, that disturbing art photographer that was showing in, off of that reef in Indonesia, a seahorse holding on to a Q-tip underwater, mm, was, yeah, yeah. was always disturbing. But this was actually a study about how plastic is impacting coral reefs. Because you think, wait, plastics are floating. Why would they bother coral reefs? And um this was actually a study uh, over the Asia-Pacific region, including the Australian Great Barrier Reef, of a group that surveyed 159 coral reefs showing that you actually did see a great deal of plastic sticking to reefs. And the more jagged the coral, the more likely it was to to catch plastic. And the implication was, okay, it's plastic there. The reef's not eating the plastic. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is you get a 20-fold increase in disease likelihood based on once the coral's draped in plastic because it stresses the coral through light deprivation, toxin release. And that is what then gives pathogens an ability to have a foothold for invasion. And so it's actually a problem on reefs, which I hadn't thought of before. And you think, well, why do you care about coral reefs? You know, we know fish can swim around it, provided they don't swallow it or eat it. But of course, coral reefs are where so many things spawn. So, you know, that... And
0: I saw an absolutely striking picture related to this study where it's um, a piece of coral and there's um, a sort of... uh Plastic kind of, and it's got the Nike kind of brand on it. And the coral, the coral actually looks moldy, like it coral kind yeah. of look a bit moldy anyway. But they say that's the infection of the coral, and that the infection can spread between corals, so corals can infect other corals. So then the infection spreads.
2: Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty bad bad scenario. Yeah. But the scale is what threw me of both the study and the implications. So 159 reefs, they surveyed 124,000 reef building corals in this study. Which meant you figure at least almost a thousand different corals they looked at in each reef. Um, the estimate was 11.1 billion pieces of plastic are on reefs. And that's I kind of went and I heard that. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm sure that could be from small plastic to big plastic, but that, that number had to be, you know, extrapolated on the 124,000 and then just multiplying on average how much coral. But that's just insane. That's mm. a huge amount of plastic because reefs are, of course, are closer to land than the Pacific garbage patch. So you, the other thing people have to remember is the plastic that ends up in someplace like the middle of the Pacific ocean is the plastic that didn't get hooked on coral or end up on a beach. Mm, it's the, yeah, the yeah. overflow. It's yeah. it's the overflow. And we think about, Oh, we'll clean up the pa- the plastic in that's out in the Pacific. There's strategies for cleaning that up, but it's actually the beaches and the stuff closer in. Where coral reefs are filters, coral reefs can be filters for everything. Uh, the estimates are a growth of forty percent in plastic on reefs by twenty
1: twenty-five. Oh, not good, not yeah. good at all. Well, uh, just very quickly, uh, it looks like uh, Russia is planning to send uh, space tourists to the International Space Station. They're even working on a new module. Um, which will apparently have many comforts, including multiple bathrooms and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did, did one of the back, backstreet boys already go up as a e, There's been a few tourists which already, one? actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> was it a good one? So this is done a by, good a, backstreet boy. Well, this mm-hmm. is done by the company, uh, yeah, that'd be a one-way trip if I was in charge. Um, but Energia, which is the company that put Yuri Gagarin in, in space, essentially one of the corporates in, in Russia. Um, are working on this and a single trip would cost you uh, I should say a round trip <laughs> it would cost you <laughs> about 100 million US dollars but so it's not second not, trip home not guaranteed yeah not guaranteed uh, well you know the Russians are doing most of the work for the US in terms of um, putting people on t- on the ISS and returning them safely so they're, they're pretty good at this stuff um, but you'd be able to take about five or six tourists up there a year apparently and um, the trip would last for about 10 days so and a lot of that's due to launch windows and when you can and cannot do it and so forth but anyway, if you have a spare 100 grand, uh, 100 sorry, 100 million, <laughs> I'd be happy to go on your behalf. So uh, call us now. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it's, it's interesting. You know, we've been talking about space tourism for quite a while and it's, it's creeping in there. And with more and more commercial players in the game. I think we'll get there eventually. But uh, I think I probably said that on the show 15 years ago. <laughs> and we'll probably say it 15 years from now and I'll then be too old to go. But it would be fun. So, uh, but they're building a new module specifically for this, so it'll be a bit more flash and I suspect some of the other modules and just for tourism. We have to leave it there. Thanks so much for listening in, folks. We're going to hand over to the team from Edith in a moment. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Laura, great that you're here and not on the plane.
0: Next, next week. Great
1: to see time. you too. Uh, we'll see you again soon though. And Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. Folks, if you want to follow us on Twitter, please do so. It's Einstein underscore agogo. And of course, we have a podcast program which you can download on your phone. Until next week, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And uh, thanks for listening to Triple R.
0: This has been a podcast from 3 rr 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.